mean, you've been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting in Work, episode 54 of the interview podcast from the 8-Bit Collective. I'm John O'Peck, and I'm so stoked to bring you this episode and another amazing story of hard work. Before we get to our special guest, I will give a quick shout out to the iTunes Review of the Week. It's from Noah Friskop from the USA, who says, Jono has created something unique and important here. The guests he brings on are great, and the format is digestible and in-depth. Excellent show. Thank you so much, Noah, and thank you for being a supporter of this show. I'm sure that you will really enjoy today's episode, because after months of back and forth, I'm so excited to present this interview with Colin Moriarty, former IGN senior editor, kind of funny co-founder, now hosting a variety of content on video games, pop culture, history and politics over on YouTube and Patreon for Colin's Last Stand. So I've been a fan of Colin for years. I feel like he's one of the most unique voices on the internet, given his combined passion for history, politics and video games, as well as some of his more conservative ideals. So after getting hired at IGN to write game guides in 2007, straight out of college, he worked his way up to become the senior editor as one of the hosts of Podcast Beyond. And along with his friend Greg Miller, a past guest on Putting In Work, episode one, if you want to go check that out, he took a huge leap to co-found the audience-funded Kind of Funny in 2015. So my two-way relationship with Colin actually started during this time, a couple of years ago on Colin and Greg Live, that live Twitch show they used to do, when he gave a shout-out to my novel, The Spy and the Maven, which I just announced this week I'm working on a sequel. That book's available on Amazon all around the world if you want to check it out. But at the time, I was crowdfunding to get published, and he was like, hey, go support this guy. It's a great achievement to write a book, so let's help him out. Let's help him get published. So I felt a great deal of gratitude towards him since then, and even invited him to write a foreword for that book, which he initially agreed to do. However, through some pretty crazy circumstances involving a particularly controversial tweet that his followers or former followers will know about, he ended up leaving Kind of Funny to go solo with a new YouTube series that was Colin's Last Stand, and given the time commitment of starting a new business, creating you know a lot of well-researched video content, he just wasn't able to commit to reading the book and writing the foreword in time for the publishing date that I was aiming towards. So that was unfortunate. I think I would have sold a lot more books if I had his name behind it uh, to that degree. But you know that's the way she goes, and I never held that against Colin in any way, of course. And I had such a great time in this interview. I'm so grateful that he gave me so much of his time. Because, you know, he's a super interesting figure. And I think the video games industry has a very obvious left-wing bias. But Colin's never been afraid to speak his mind. And that's made him polarizing for some people. But to me, Colin's a remarkable story about rising up to success just through that bootstrap mentality that he loves to talk about. Hard work, determination, and being bold enough to speak often unpopular opinions. You know, knowing that this honesty would endear him to people who value that. So here he is, pride of Long Island. He only does everything. Colin Moriarty. Thank you so much for joining me, Colin. You're a hard man to pin down, but I've done it. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. That's all right. This has been on the cards for, well, I think I emailed you about the podcast in October, but to finally get you, it's it's a real thrill because it was a year ago to this weekend that I first interviewed Greg and Tim for episode one and two at RTX Sydney. And at the time, I always thought it would be great to get Colin Moriarty on the show. And here we are. It only took me one year. It's really mostly my fault. I'm also... When I was at IGN, I used to like get in really early in the morning and answer all my emails. Um, yeah. And then like and like churn, I was like really, I was really good. I never like when you see people with like inbox zero, that was always my inbox. And then when I uh, founded kind of funny with the guys, I got a little more lackadaisical about that. And then with CLS, I work so much that I literally go into my email and respond at like fifty emails at one time, like once a week. Yeah, so it's it's a long way of saying a long winded way of saying it's my fault. 
and uh, I'm very happy to uh, to do the show with you today. That's something that I was going to ask later, but you've kind of brought it up already, so I want to ask now. How do you compare the workload in terms of how much time a week you're putting into your work? Like working from somewhere corporate to a startup like kind of funny and then self-employed or sole trader, whatever you call yourself now. Like I think a lot of people imagine working from home as uh, the luxury of having to pick my hours and I can play games in the morning and I can watch the, the you know the, the football game or whatever. Are you the busiest now that you've ever been? Yeah, definitely by far. I think that... In a weird way, a kind of funny, I was the least busy out of the three major jobs that I had, simply because at IGN, I was always paranoid that I was going to get laid off. We had <laughs> annual layoffs uh, from for the entire time I was there until Fox sold us. Um, so you were always risking getting purged, and and uh, really good people got purged out of, out of that site. You know, mm-hmm. Ryan Clements being the, the major one, I couldn't believe um, when he got laid off. And so no one was safe. And so I, I worked constantly and, and, uh, you know, we would get like reviews every quarter, every two quarters. And I'd always actually get perfect scores, which I was really proud of. But the response I always got was you work too much. Um, you're always here. And I was like, well, good. I'm glad you noticed. Uh, and then, uh, I kind of funny, I worked a lot. I mean, I worked, you know, 40, 50 hours a week, but that was really not as much as I was working at IGN and I was having like way more fun. So it was, not that bad, especially because I didn't have to administrate the business like uh, Nick does all that. And so when I founded Collins Last Stand, um, <laughs> my life kind of like immediately just was, you know, all about CLS. And uh, there's just a lot of work to do. And I'm freeing up more time now. By the time this goes live, the new show that I'm going to announce would have been announced. It's exciting. And uh, yeah, so basically Collins Last Stand, the show is going on ice for a little while. And uh, that's simply because it's doing the worst out of the three shows. And I want to do something, Fireside Chats and SideQuest being the other two. And so I want to do something new. I'm doing it with my brother. Um, we're calling it Knockback. It's a, a show about uh, the things we love, the comic books for people that like comics. My brother's an artist. Um, but the movies, the TV shows, the video games, but not newer stuff, older stuff. Uh, the idea being that the podcast will be listenable for many years. Um, as opposed to, you know, an yeah. episode of Podcast Beyond is really kind of like a week and then it's over. So anyway, I'm saying all of that because my life has revolved a great deal around CLS and, you know, 60 or 70 hours a week is not really unheard of. And a lot of that is, um, you know, learning, lawyers, accountants, taxes. Hmm. If something doesn't get done, it's because of me. And if something needs to get done, it's not going to get done without me. Yeah, I guess you think about something like IGN and like I went got to tour the office last year in San Francisco and like so many departments and so many positions within every department in sales and in marketing and for the infrastructure of the website and the ad revenue and you think all of that is being condensed down into one person for what you're doing so it's a fairly impressive feat to pull it off I think yeah well I'm I'm doing the best I can I mean dude I have so many I mean they're really like trivial and dumb stories but like so many things that have just sucked so much time from my life (laughs) you know running a business that at IGN, and even it kind of funny, if I had, uh, you know, insurance problems, I'd have, you know, I'd, I could talk to HR, I could talk to Nick. If, uh, you know, paycheck didn't come through or a contractor needed to be paid or something like that, I, <laughs> just the amount of time, so I'm an LLC, um, but I'm being taxed as an S corporation by the IRS. So just sending documents back and forth, being on the phone with them about that is probably like 20 hours of my life that I'll never get back. Going to meetings with my accountant, hours and hours, I'll never get back. Going to see my lawyers, hours and hours, I'll never get back. Uh, trademarking CLS. Do, there's little things that have to be done for the yeah. business that are just, it just never, ever, ever ends. And so I wish that I could just create content, but honestly, that's only like half of my job, you know, dealing with all the other, something's always broken, something's always wrong, 
you know, you have to deal with Patreon, you have to deal with all these kinds of things. So I, I sound like I'm complaining and I guess I am complaining, but at the same time, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just an enormous amount of work to run your own business, but it's, uh, it's yeah. been a great honor as well. Sure. Well, that's the name of this show. It's, it's putting in work. So that's the kind of thing that I'm interested in. <laughs> now, the position you have is somewhat unique because however many thousands and thousands of millions, I guess, uh, YouTubers, there's not so many that make a living from it. So when you meet someone that doesn't understand how this community or, you know, online world works, how do you explain your job to those people? Usually I don't want to talk about it with people that I don't really know. So I, when, you know, if I'm in an Uber or something and they're like, Oh, what do you do? I'm like, Oh, I just, I'm in video production. Right. You know, so it's boring as possible to end the conversation as quickly as humanly possible. But with people that I, I know, I mean, they like family I, or whatever. Yeah. They, they, they kind of understand, I think because I worked, you know, in high school when I was writing for game facts and writing for fan sites in the nineties, that was like a very unique and novel thing and weird thing. And people didn't really understand that. I don't know if you remember, and I'm sure you probably do that meeting people online or telling them your real name and stuff like people were scared of all of this that yeah. the internet has really changed like the idea i remember meeting a buddy of mine that i knew online from you know video games um in the early 2000s he came and stayed with me for a week and this was like a big deal is this guy a fucking serial killer uh, you know like it like and it, it's the internet was so different back then and so i think that with me writing and kind of creating content since the late 90s all the way to today that family and friends kind of just understand that that's what I do and don't really ask questions anymore. And and I've said it before, but one of the great things that I remember kind of validating what I do is my dad apologizing to me when I uh, graduated from college for giving me such a hard time for spending so much time on the computer and on the internet writing and doing all these things because I got my job offer from IGN and he was like, I was wrong. Um, this is something that you can do and make money on. And, and so... I've been very blessed to make a very good living doing this. And, um, you know, like an athlete or a musician or whatever, you never know when it's going to end. Um, so I still have the poverty mentality and I still live below my right. means and I still um, try to be thankful. I still, you know, walk. I live in Santa Monica near the beach, like pretty much right on the beach. And it's a pretty nice area. And I always feel weird because I'm walking to Wendy's, like <laughs> getting my $7 meal and doing it. Nothing's really changed. I still wear my jeans and my T-shirts and all this kinds of stuff. So I'm pretty much the same person to my family and friends that I was when I was a teenager. And so that evolution of my content and the evolution of who I am is kind of predictable to them. Um, but yeah, when I when I meet people at a party or, you know, yeah, I, I just kind of try to gloss over so that we can minimize the questions because then people like have lots of inquiries. A thousand yeah. questions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about the journey that got you here. Uh, anyone that's followed you uh, through IGN or kind of funny probably knows the story of you know writing game facts for Zelda and Mega Man. And would you agree that you never aspired for a career in video games growing up? Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely true. I never I never thought that it was possible. And I really admired the people that wrote on various websites, and I really admired the people that, you know, PlayStation Magazine, PSM, um, was really like a, a, a formidable magazine for me that came out in 1997. And, uh, you know, I, I, I followed those guys, and obviously IGN and, and everything, but it, it was just, I really loved politics and history. I never really thought about, you know, games as a career. And then when IGN reached out to me um, to write for money, I was like, that's great. That's a way for me to make lots of money in college, com comparable to the people that were working for six or seven dollars an hour, you know, doing whatever they were doing. So again, even in college when I was a freelancer and I was an intern at IGN, it was like I was having fun and enjoying the moment, knowing or thinking that I was going to go to grad school and get my PhD and all that kind of stuff. So no, I didn't expect it. And that's kind of the beautiful part of it to me is the, the unexpected nature of it and kind of, you know, I know a lot of people make fun of it, but it's like I really believe in the bootstraps mentality, the working hard mentality. 
and that you can get what you want if you work hard enough and you're talented enough and you have a luck, which is a huge component. Sure. I feel like I knocked a door down that a lot of people wanted to knock down. And I'm, I'm immensely proud of that. So my life changed as a result of that. And, and uh, I'm on a different trajectory. And I'm 33 now. I never I never thought that I would be doing this into my 30s. So, no, I didn't expect to have a job in gaming. And I'm super honored um, to still be able to do it for an audience. To go from, I guess, writing walkthroughs and that kind of thing to doing reviews on one of the biggest websites out there. Well, it's probably the biggest now, but I'm not sure at the time. You, you've done that. You've developed the skill in writing. How did you come to be the editor of, was it the PlayStation team or the editorial team? Yeah, back at, uh, so IGN always, GameSpot did it for a while and a few others, but there was this mantra of splitting people up by expertise and consoles, so like Nintendo editors and Xbox editors and PC editors. And actually at IGN, this was something that was always fought against by a lot of people in the on the editorial staff. I was one, and Greg was too, of people that were like, expertise is important. We don't have to pretend that we play everything on everything because I certainly don't and I'm not going to pretend that I do. I don't really care about PC games. I don't really care about Xbox. So we kind of found our way with Podcast Beyond and with all of that kind of stuff to, I think, building like what was and will always be the most, you know, informative and um, and uh, one of the most important voices in PlayStation because that's what we did. And uh, we would play all the obscure PSN games. We had relationships with the studios and relationships with Sony and all of that. So that was kind of the way it happened. And that's why I think IGN dominated. I think that's part of the reason is because it wasn't this agnostic website that of people that pretended they played everything. It was a, it was a website of, of specialists. And um, even though that that was not the way they do it anymore, and even they actually folded that when I was still there, I still like wouldn't relinquish control of IGN PlayStation until, uh, until I left. So yeah, that's kind of how I found my way in. Just I asked to move over from guides. I was, I was going to quit. And because um, I was like, I just can't do this anymore. It sucks. And uh, they accepted, you know, they allowed, you know, Hillary Goldstein and, and Per Schneider and those guys like let me come over. And, and um, you know, Greg and I worked together for a long time on, on IGN PlayStation. And that's just kind of how it happened. And then I became senior editor. And, and um, you know, I was going to be, I think, editor at large. That was kind of the job that was being thrown around when I quit. Yeah. So that's how I found my way there. It was a long time ago. It's funny when I talk about it now. It's 2018. Yeah. You know, I quit in 2014. So it's been a, it, it used to feel like I could reach back and touch it. But it's so far away now. Yeah. But was there an element of being given a position of leadership that you kind of looked at like, wow, I didn't I didn't see myself as this person? Or was it that you were actually ready to embrace that title and, you know, that responsibility of being at the top? Well, I didn't want people underneath me that I had to deal with, like a, like a personnel. Like I didn't want to be anyone's like boss. So being a senior editor was basically just being the lead editor of the pool, which is cool. Um, you kind of call your own shots and kind of do, you know, cover the games, you know, when you're an associate editor or a new editor, you get a lot of nonsense and bullshit. And then when you rise up the ranks, then you start calling your games. You start telling people what you want to play and what you want to review. And that's how you get games like The Last of Us and all that kind of yeah. stuff, which would have never happened, um, you know, a few years earlier. And uh, so becoming senior editor was really more of an acknowledgement of my time and my work and my work effort and, and um, uh, work ethic, I should say. For me, I, 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 you know, I guess I could have stayed around and jockey to be managing editor and whatever, but that's like that's not content creation. That's kind of like a totally not a, a job I wanted, which is why I was interested in talking about editor at large, which is basically an editor that does whatever he wants, you know, goes and chases stories and writes and everyone kind of leaves him alone and trusts them and stuff like that. So that's kind of more where I wanted to be. In other words, like have a position of seniority, but not a position of of governance. Sure. As it were. So in the time at IGN, I think 
the pieces that you're probably most well known for apart from the reviews would be the long form articles whether it's the history of naughty dog or other storytelling on important issues in games or stories in games and i wonder if you would agree that that was maybe the seed that was planted for a series like uh colin is right on kind of funny and the colin's last stand history and political videos in that you're exploring an issue in greater depth and you're presenting that in a way that isn't that common on the internet or it's not produced at a large scale yeah i I wanted to i wanted to kind of expose the as many of the stories and kind of the inside look that i got on game development specifically um and the stories behind games because i feel like we often i feel like games media and games journalism is usually pretty vapid that was true when I was younger. That was true when I was at IGN, and that's true now. And that's not a that's not a, a mark against IGN or GameSpot or anything like that. That's the nature of games media. It's the same in film. It's the same in TV. It's it's not exclusive to games. It's the same in comics and all that kind of stuff. Where it's it seems more gatekeeperish and and everything's behind a wall and there's a lot of secrecy and a lot of marketing timing and all this kind of stuff. That you have to work around and it kind of sucks. And, and the, mm-hmm. the more you're um, immersed in an environment, the more you realize that it's not what it seems and that there are great stories and people and ideas behind all of these. And that if I could just expose this to people, that they would realize that a lot of this is just as fascinating and just as interesting as the games and uh, sometimes way more interesting than the games. I mean, think about Mass Effect Andromeda. I haven't played it, but I heard it's pretty bad. But the story behind Mass Effect Andromeda is fascinating. And you're seeing a specific, a similar story behind Anthem kind of developing where the games it seems to be in trouble. Well, that's exciting and interesting stuff. And if we don't take the gaming industry seriously from that perspective, then no one should take us seriously. And so I was trying to expose those stories. And I think I did that somewhat successfully with Insomniac and with Naughty Dog and with uh, Sony Bend and Sony San Diego, Sony Santa Monica. I tried to kind of write these stories that, you know, didn't do great traffic, but that, you know, revealed a lot to the world and are... You know, it's funny when I go read uh, Wikipedia articles every so often on this, that, or the other thing, I'm cited on a lot of these from those stories. And that's kind of cool because this information was new. And I think it inspired some people to try to get into that. And, and I, I was really honored when Destin Lake Area was on uh, Fireside Chats with me a couple of weeks ago. And he said that that hole that I left behind was never really filled. And I really, I'm glad that people still have a hunger for that. And that's what I was trying to do with, with my shows. They were never mega popular, but I think that for people that don't just play a few games a year, but that are ingratiated into the industry. I think that they find that stuff interesting. Yeah, I guess it's hard with the internet being so much about clicks and you know videos with subtitles because people don't want to listen to anything on the train or whatever. Like the way the internet changing is determining what content people are creating. So websites like Grantland will die, and you know the articles you used to write for IGN they're not being written anymore. And I think it's probably for that reason as well as maybe whether it's the personnel there. I'm not sure. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it's, they wouldn't have let a new editor take the amount of time and effort and money that it took to, you know, when I went to, when I wrote the history of Naughty Dog, that was like a month of my life, you know, that that's not really, you know, between being there and transcribing and dealing with transcribers and narrowing it all down and writing it and doing additional research and stuff. I mean, that's, they definitely lost money on that, but these are what are called prestige pieces and in the industry and, Mm -hmm. and in writing and they make IGN or they made IGN look good. And I think that there's some inherent value in that as well. But this isn't something that they wouldn't just hire an associate editor and be like, go write one thing for yeah. one month. I mean, that's just not the way it works. And I was just recently talking to my brother about that because I'm so used to churning so quickly that I don't have time to breathe and think anymore about anything. Like it's it's just on to the next thing constantly. And so it was a ni- it was nice to, to have that, you know, even for a moment. Sure. So in terms of the work that goes into that, you talk about, the research and the transcribing and the writing 
do you feel like moving over to video you have brought that same the same process because you're talking about history you're talking about politics you're talking about current affairs of video games you have to know what you're saying you can't just talk off the cuff so is it the same writing process that goes into it yeah it's uh it's the process is is tough and that, and it goes back to what i just said where it's just always on to the next one you can never and i don't think i've ever gotten an episode of anything i've done ever and i'm talking about at ign it kind of funny now like now where i'm like there's just nothing about this that could be better there's there's nothing that i could improve i wish i said this i wish i didn't say this i wish that i included this it's just when you're in this fast-paced world or this fast-paced kind of churn um, and you're not making real documentaries, but you're making kind of these little op-ed videos, you have to kind of go with your instinct. You kind of have to settle on something quickly and then you have to write. And usually my videos are done in two days each. Um, usually uh, I'm thinking a great deal, writing a great deal, uh, making notes about what I want to do. And then I'll sit down on day one and write the script, research, do all that kind of stuff, compile it. And then I will shoot it and edit it the next day. And uh, you, there's just not more time to marinate on it than that. And so it's a, it's a super stressful life, which is why I'm super excited about, you know, putting CLS on ice for just a little while as a show and focusing on two podcasts and one episode of SideQuest a week that I think will make SideQuest better. And I don't know that, you know, I'll leave that up to the audience to let me know. But I think that like I'm so and that's what I was talking about with my brother, who's going to be the co-host with me on the new show is there's something really advantageous to being just a little bit more thoughtful and it's not because you don't want to be thoughtful. It's because you don't have the time. And this is a this is a common theme with anyone that makes content online, you know. So it's it's hard. It's extremely hard to keep sixty two episodes of Collins Last Stand in less than a year, uh, nine episodes of Side Quest, twenty three episodes of Fireside Chats. It's a lot of content, it and uh, I'm so I'm constantly thinking about it. It's, it's just constantly on my mind. I hope it's working. I, you know, it, again, it's up to the audience whether they like it or not. Sure. And I know you've probably, at least for the longest part of your career, saw yourself as a writer. So deciding to go almost completely into video, what was that decision like for you? Was that because of what I mentioned before about how the internet audience is changing? Because I know that you'd probably would prefer to not have your face on camera and not have your voice audibly heard rather than just being able to write it out and put it out there and not have to deal with what comes back. Yeah, I'd, if I could choose my own path and, and have it be viable, it would definitely be writing. But it was hard. It was, it was you know, I think that I, I'm oh, my effect on IGN's video product is a little underrated. Um, and I think that a lot of people don't realize that things like very, very fundamental things like putting two people on camera to talk about something um, like a, a news story, a conversation is what we call them in IGN. That was my idea. Um, and that, that seems that seems obvious now, but it wasn't yeah. when we, when we, when we did that to say like instead of writing a news article instead of writing an op-ed, take two people and put them in a room and and quickly film something and get it up. That was an initiative I undertook, and so I think that um, I think that a lot of people don't realize and know that I had some bona fides in video to to realize where things were going. And sure. so when we did PlayStation conversation and all those kinds of things, that was from my heart, and I wanted to do that. And at kind of funny. You know, things like the morning show and all that stuff was were also my idea. So it's not that I have this aversion to the video. Um, it's that I didn't know how I was going to balance writing. And what I found out was that I'm not really going to balance it, that doing video and podcasting is taking up all of my time. But that's also where the audience is. So if, if you want to be stubborn and just like write into a void, you can do that. But if you want to be where the audience is and have them enjoy your content and enjoy your takes, you have to go where they are and you have to do what they want you to do in some respect. And so I was happy to do that. But it was a very difficult choice. I remember going out to dinner or lunch with Pear when I was quitting. And he was asking me, like, are you really sure that you want to do this? Because you're you're different than the other three guys in that respect. You're really a writer. 
And I was like, yeah, I'm sure. Because I still write two or three times a week. I'm writing all these scripts. Hmm. It's just a little bit of a different delivery system. But I don't have this aversion to, you know, to video and podcasting that I think a lot of people thought or think that I do. Specifically podcasting. I love podcasting. But this is really just the nature of the beast. It's like still insisting on riding a horse-drawn carriage when there's, you know, motor vehicles all around you. It's, 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 you can, you can hold on, I guess, but you're kind of, you know, backwards at that point and no one's going to pay any attention to you and you're just annoying the people at that point. So, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I, I know that's a long-winded way of answering it, but I, I, I think that I can have the best of both worlds and I think that I've found that balance. But you're a writer and you can respect the, the idea that I would always wish that I could write more than I do. Absolutely. And I know that uh, writing is probably not something that you're done with in terms of the, you know, written word. So hopefully I can see some more from you in the future. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not done. I'm pursuing something right now that's very exciting. And uh, if and when I have more to say about it, I will. But yeah, I pitched something to a big developer about a game that I love and we'll see uh, where it goes. seems like there's some interest in it. Excellent. So in terms of the content you're making now or the grind to build up the skills to where you are now what's been the hardest part of that journey for you it's constantly learning i mean i again this goes back to ign and even a little bit of kind of funny but ign where we were so siloed off that we didn't have to really have a wide array of skills right so um i knew games very well i wrote about games very well i had contacts i was good at journalism all those kinds of things that's kind of like encapsulated in what i needed to do but if i needed to execute on a video a conversation like we were talking about a video review an interview on video or a podcast or something audio related i had nothing to do with that and i had no idea how how it worked so like i didn't care um i had no interest in learning how to do it and then eventually it kind of funny you had to i had to buff up a little bit on my skills and learn things that i never wanted to learn and never thought i'd have to had to learn you really become like kind of uh, self-sufficient the smaller your company gets and the smaller your kind of um, reach gets and so these days like I, if you asked me a year ago, like, wow, you're really efficient at Premiere now. I don't, I know my edits aren't like the, you know, I'm, I'm basically like a poor man's Ken Burns with the way I edit videos. But the fact that I even know how to do that now is really impressive to me because I had no idea how to even, you know, what, looking at Premiere is like looking at the Matrix yeah. the first time you look at it. It's super complicated. It's incredibly complicated. Um, but when you start to learn how to do that, I mean, that was pretty much the most, the so the technical stuff was the most difficult stuff that I had to learn how to do. And what I realized was it wasn't, it wasn't nearly as daunting as I thought it was. But to do a high-end edit to, to understand equipment at a high-end or whatever, that's a different story, obviously. But um, So I think that that was the, the greatest skill and the, the most difficult skill that I had to learn because it's not natural to me. I'm very right-brained. Um, and uh, it, 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 technology, like, I'm very stupid with that stuff. I really am. <laughs> so uh, I don't understand. You know, I, use, I guess I use computers proficiently and stuff, but I don't understand how they work. I don't, you know, if someone's like, you know, and I built, I bought a new uh, Origin laptop because I love Origin. And they're like, someone's like, why don't you just build your own? And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, I have no yeah. idea, like, what goes into that and all that. So I, I uh, so I think it was the more technical skills and kind of the execution skills that I had a, that I had a focus on, as opposed to kind of the, the, the ideas, the, the writing, the preliminary stuff that I was really good at. Yeah, that's like me when a, my car stops working and you pop the hood and I'm like, well... What do I do now? <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. It's it, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even when we get furniture even, you know, delivered and stuff. Aaron puts it together. There's no way I'm going near anything that requires like you know tactile skill. <laughs> that's funny. Now that's so that's kind of I guess the tangible like content skill side of things. But there's a whole part of what you do that's personal. It's community it's interacting with people and it's being a persona because whether you like it or not you are an online celebrity and i imagine that that term was probably hard for you to, to 
adjust to when you realize that there was no getting away from it. So can we talk a little bit about as an introvert, what it's been like to put yourself out there and make yourself almost vulnerable to criticism, both good and bad, obviously, but there's definitely been a share of negative criticism of someone who's as outspoken as you are, particularly when you're talking about politics. Yeah, I, I, uh, I am introverted and, and it's, the adjustment was slow. So, you know, it ramped up over many years. Mm. And so I think that allowed me to kind of ease into it a little bit. And I also had a bigger center of gravity next to me for most of it, which was Greg, who likes that, you know, like he and that's not an insult at all. He he enjoys attention. He enjoys the community. He enjoys being kind of the, the conductor, as it were. Right. Mm. And uh, that's always what I think made us work was that I was able to bring something substantive to the table. And that balanced well with Greg's gregariousness, uh, humor, and kind of uh, these broad shoulders that he was able to go into situations with and kind of suck a lot of that attention up away from me, which was nice. And I loved that about our relationship. And we used to call it yin and yang. I mean, that's what we used to call it to each other, which was like it worked in that special way because of that, the different things we were looking for, the different things we were good at, and the different things we wanted. And I know that I become this firebrand kind of persona to a lot of people, but I don't think it's really commensurate to who I am or what I've said. And I think a lot of that has been propagated by a far left, totally ridiculous portion of the games industry and games media that just looked the character assassinate and destroy. Um, not very well, as you can see, <laughs> um, anyone that, that, uh, that steps out of line for them. And, uh, that the reasons for that I think are deep and, um, you know, we don't have to go into those here, but needless to say, I try to just be true to myself. I try to be good um, and honest and kind uh, to people. And I think my audience sees who I really am. The The disappointing thing to me is that, you know, rumors are propagated. I mean, we're all subjected to them, right? Like you always hear something about someone and you're like, oh, that must be true. Mm-hmm. And then maybe later you find out that it's not, but you probably don't. And you probably move on with your life. And that's the one thing that I think is sad is that when I invited Brandon Jones onto my show from Easy Allies, the response from portions of his audience was, was frankly embarrassing yeah. from my perspective because it was, it was like so out of like, like the ether. It was just totally made up and manufactured nonsense. And I realized at that point that there's these, there have been these seeds set at certain points in the gaming industry and the games media and, and those who consume the content that just have preconceived notions that you cannot break no matter what. And that's sad to me, but I put myself in that position in a way because I said things differently than other people do. And I think that's why I found and continue to find success is because I am a conduit for people that the other million people that's all say and sound the same uh, and say the same things don't say. And so that comes with a certain cost. And uh, I'm willing to, 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 uh, to deal with that. What happened recently with uh, the, the abuse video I put up was surprising to me in a sense, but not also surprising because I wasn't the right kind of person. Right. I wasn't the right kind of victim. And uh, and I wasn't, uh, you know, even though I showed the receipts and had all these uh, mm. this evidence that people wanted and stuff, I just wasn't the right kind of person. If I was a different person and told the same story, if I was a woman, um, if I was a liberal minded person or a more outspoken person in that respect, I'm sure the response would have been very different. But that was out there for everyone to see. And so you have to take that information and do with it what you will. And uh, I can't control that. So, you know, I, I simply try to do the very best I can to be honest and open and transparent. And, uh, you know, and if the audience likes that, they do. And if they don't, they don't. But I think that the core CLS fans and the core kind of funny beyond PS I Love You, IGN fans, they know who I am. Mm. And, they've, and they've known that for a long time. And, and I think that's part of what, you know, I don't like getting going down this rabbit hole often, but it, I think it's part of what annoys a lot of people in the industry is that they don't find that level of success 
and they, and they cert- a lot of these people certainly wouldn't be able to spin off and do their own things ever because it's a monotype. It's the same thing. It's the same thing said over and over and over again. And uh, I'm proud to be different than that. And if people want to attack me for that, then that's their prerogative. But there's nothing I can really do about that, you know? Yeah. So for someone that's not naturally, like like you mentioned, Greg, and I don't know, uh, some people have described him as like the human megaphone because he's just, you know, he's got a million, 1.3 million Twitter followers. He's always promoting his own stuff and he does a great job of kind of branding. And that's, I'm guessing, not natural for you. So how do you think you've done so well without that natural self-promotion and outlandish personality that tends to pull people in like that? I think it's because I don't do it a lot. One of the things we I kind of funny that Greg and I used to talk about, because I was in charge of our social media stuff there, which was ironic, <laughs> was why do my tweets do the best out of all of our, our, our tweets, right? Like this was something I really tried to get to the bottom of. Greg would tweet out a video or I would tweet out a video for Greg and it would get X, Y, and Z for follow, you know retweets and, and follow or you know likes or whatever. And then I would tweet the same thing out and get many, many more with a, with a lower reach, right? And this happens somewhat regularly. And... I think it's because that people are surprised, in a sense, when um, when I do promote something. I try to promote things once, um, and I feel like I need to do that, even though I don't think any traffic is really driven from, you know, very little traffic, actually, on YouTube and even on my podcast is driven, actually, from social media. I just feel like it's got to be done every once in a while. And we tried to, I, I really tried to get to the bottom of, like, why is that? Why does that work? And I think it's because it's the unusual juxtaposition of who I am. And so when I say something, maybe people take that more seriously. I don't, I don't really know. But I've, I've tried to kind of get to the bottom of, of how that success was garnered and how I still continue to, to do pretty well on social media. And I think it's because there's a, maybe a level of authenticity. Maybe there's a level. I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's up to ultimately to the people out there. But uh, yeah, like it's a complicated situation where you're not a natural self-promoter. I learned a lot from Greg by watching how it's done in that respect. To, to, to promote yourself, to not to, to have a little bit of shamelessness about it because that's the nature of the game and that you don't have to be embarrassed and you don't have to like let your ego get all wrapped up into it. And that's kind of the ironic thing is that I used to bust Greg's balls about, you know, his ego and stuff like that. But there is a definitely an ego involved in not wanting to have an ego. And yeah. uh, that's kind of the, the, the sad truth of it as well. So we were always kidding around about that, but I certainly had my own uh, drawbacks in that respect as well. So I, I don't quite know how effective the social media presence is. I don't quite know why people follow me or like what I say or listen to what I say, but there has been success there. And, and, and I just can try, I try to just tone it down, keep it to a minimum. People want to follow you on Twitter, not to just hear everything you're doing, and, but they want to hear what you're saying. And so I try to balance that in as well. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. Like I can relate to that because before I wrote and crowdfunded the publishing of my book, people would be surprised now to know that I wasn't the kind of person that would be telling people to buy something that I had worked on, but to get published, I had to, I didn't have a choice. And I kind of knew that, okay, this is going to be who I am from now on is the person that is pimping their stuff constantly. And people who want to support you, they understand what's happening and they understand that that's what has to be done. So there's that, there's that side of it as well, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I it's, it's funny because I feel like, it is a necessary evil, but again, it is all about that really precious balance. And I, I'm like the anti-promoter in many ways, like, and 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 am bad for business in many ways. And I think I was that way, kind of funny too, in the sense that I would often tell people like, just don't pay us. If you, like people would be like, I I don't have that much money, but I'm giving you guys a few dollars a month or whatever. And I'm like, just don't. Like it's okay. Like you don't. I actually gave this uh, it, you know, 
I have a really close relationship with Patreon and I'm, I, I'm involved in betas on the back end and they kind of tell me what's going on and solicit feedback from me a lot. And uh, one of the things I told them was that there are these things on Patreon called exit surveys where people leave, you know, they cancel their subscription. They have the, they have the opportunity to tell you why. And some people do, most people don't, but I always feel bad reading them or I typically feel bad reading them <laughs> because it's always like um, lost my job. I'll be back when I can. Or, uh, you know, I just had a kid and I need to save money or, you know, money's tight. And I gave the feedback to Patreon that I was like, it would be nice even if it's anonymous for me to be able to reach out to these people to say it's OK. And uh, so maybe I'm not a very good businessman, <laughs> but uh, I think that that level of authenticity and it really is authentic works. Like I don't want people to like have a gun to their head. I want people to like love the content and feel like they can do that. And, and, and if they can't, then they can always listen to it and enjoy it for free. You know? Yeah. I think you're the only guy on YouTube that says thumbs down if you don't like the video as well. <laughs> I mean, why not? I mean, you're going to anyway, right? So it's like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's almost mechanical. Like thumb up if you like the video, thumb it down if you don't. And, but that's feedback, right? And yeah. the, the worst like to dislike ratio I have is the confederacy video i did i think which is still like six or seven to one so even me saying that isn't encouraging people to be assholes it's just me be saying like give me the feedback let me know what you think mm. uh i don't interface with many of you and that thumb up or thumb down is actually really valuable advice on what's working and what isn't and people that like i i just there's too much pride wrapped up in youtubing and podcasting and stuff like where you're not going to hit a home run every time there are videos I, I go back and look at. Like I hate when people are like everything's great and everything's perfect. I'm like, no. I go back and look at some things and I'm like, man, I don't I don't really even like this video very much. I wish I could have done this differently. But this goes back to to me working as hard as I can in the moment and producing the best I can in the moment because there's just not en enough time and being honest with yourself that you need to adjust. And I think the shows have gotten better because of that. I think CLS is better than it's ever been. I think SideQuest is getting better. I think Fireside Chats is totally different based on that okay. feedback you know fireside chats was supposed to be an audio essay series it's not you know so if i just like kind of put my finger in my fingers in my ears and just you know la 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 all day and pretended that there was no way to solicit feedback and no way to read into what people thought then there would be a very static cls and it probably would be doing way worse than it is now so i'm always open to that feedback and it goes back to what you were saying before i don't mind criticism at all what i do mind per the video is being targeted by you know an incredibly uh, obsessive personality um, for abuse and harassment and those are different things you know absolutely and you mentioned feedback how important that is and i feel like since starting collins last day and you know you came out and it was very much i'm going to talk about history i'm going to talk about politics and and that was your interest for probably your whole life just about you studied that at university college whatever uh and that was what it was going to be but you've you know you've pivoted as they say you've responded to people saying well colin we miss your voice about games and we miss your interactions with other people and, and we miss you podcasting and now talking about putting that to the side do you feel like it's just an, another part of that process of responding to what people want from you and, and wanting to give people what they want rather than just what you might necessarily feel like creating yeah i mean I'm not, i don't have you know i'm not i love the term fuck you money which is the which is the funniest term to me and there are people that have fuck you money and they can just do whatever they want right and and live their life and really and the the uh, the honest truth is that if you want to make a living you know if you're a normal person like you or I and you need to make a living and you need to pay your bills and stuff like that you need to cater to a market there's a piece of that with Collins last stand where I read and I heard and, and 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 again it's like putting your fingers in your ears I did that for a while and just was like you know I'm doing this I'm doing this and I realized a few things I realized one that you know interest in that was waning I realized even more than that that 
because the interest doesn't really matter if the if the Patreon the, the videos could literally do five views each. It doesn't matter as long as the Patreon is doing well. So it's not it's not just performance, but it's also like a level of personal happiness. The one thing, just being perfectly honest, that I didn't realize getting into political and his, you know politics particularly is how unhappy it made me. And it's not because the subject matter makes me unhappy. I think it's fascinating. I love it. I read about politics every day. I read books every day. I love that stuff. But the grind of dealing with the same people saying the same shit over and over again, only interested in fighting with each other, no interest in compromise, no interest in truth, it wears you down and it grates on you. And I left video games for a while because I wanted to get away from that same environment, but it's way worse in politics and maybe I should have known better. So it's not me abandoning the cause because I'm putting the show on ice. I want to go back to it um, and do it again and make it more seasonal. But it, you know, I haven't really expressed it to anyone, but it's it's so I'm expressing it now for the first time. There's a level of you have to find your own happiness and you have to find your own way and you have to find your own rewards. They, they don't have to be monetary rewards. Remember that I could have made and sustained way more money than I made if I went in on social justice warriors and the left and stuff. And I refused to do yeah. that because that's not who I am and that's not what made me happy. A lot of people joined and then I lost immediately a lot of people on Patreon because that's not who I ended up being. So the evolution of Collins Last Stand is... I think me following my heart, it's a total chronicle of where I'm going and what I want to do. And what I want is for Collins Last Stand to change constantly. I want it to have shows that switch in and out and keep things fresh and interesting. I don't like this idea on the internet that things have to exist forever. You know, Podcast Beyond, for instance, which is a great show and I like the guys that do it and people enjoy it, but it's like three shows different than it was before I was even on it. In a way, yeah. you kind of wonder like, is the show that Greg and I did even Podcast Beyond? Because there was 100 episodes of the podcast beyond before that that was totally different. And my idea with Colin's Last Stand is like, why does everything have to be 500 episodes? Why can't CLS be 62 episodes and go away, you know, mm. um, and come back and, and vacillate depending on demand? So I, I'm, I'm using this as, a, as a, a tool to leverage different things that I want to do and also have plenty of political and historical content and especially political and fireside chats. I have a bunch of stuff lined up that's going to be awesome. That's political. That's not going away. Yeah, that's who you are. Yeah, exactly. But it's exhausting and it's sad. You know, like it's, it's a like maybe it's not even the age of Trump. It's just it's just a sad situation. I'm just so tired of social media. I'm so tired of the bickering and the fighting and no one really wants to solve problems or a few people really do because then that would ruin their businesses. Solving problems and having nothing to fight about anymore is bad for business. And when I realized that, I was like, this isn't really exactly what I hoped it would be. And uh, thankfully, I have an audience that wants different things, that likes to adapt, that likes to experiment with me. And I think that where CLS is going is going to be way better than it was you know, when I founded it. That's cool. And yeah, it's a, sh it's a shame that that is the nature of, of politics because it turns so many people off. Like I worked in a political office for a year and coming out of that, I was like, I kind of just want to not pay attention to politics for a while now because it just soured me that experience of looking at the different sides and seeing hypocrisy of, you know, how similar they actually are in a lot of ways. And, you know, just feeling like there's no way to engage in this without people just like blindly sticking to their story and not allowing any compromise to come through. Yeah, it's, it's blood sport. And it's and that's always been the way it is. I know that about mm. politics. I'm not naive. I studied politics in a very deep way. So you 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 inherently know that. But you when you ingratiate yeah. yourself, when you really immerse yourself in it, it becomes super depressing. Like it's just like this is yeah. this kind of sucks to do this all the <laughs> to do this all the time because I don't I don't think I'm built for it in a way. Like I'm not built yeah. 
to I'm not people like look at me as it's like fire like I said before firebrand brash combatant and stuff and I'm just not really who I am you know like I, I don't really want to do that um, which is why when everyone thought I was going to take the mm. piss out of the left and all this I'm like eh, it's not really what I wanted yeah, to do yeah. you know um, you, almost, you almost have to enjoy arguing to be in that community exactly and that's why when I when I founded CLS and that was the expectation that's why I opened with the third amendment video I was totally intentional which is be like this isn't what you think it's going to be so just so you know and a lot of people bailed at that point <laughs> and that's fine but i wanted to be honest yeah. and not i wanted to be myself and who i am is a compromiser who i am is someone who wants solutions i really believe that politics exists not for politics to exist politics exists to solve problems so that the political system becomes easier and and hopefully unneeded you know in some respect we obviously need governance but to, to have these quarrels all put to bed because there are solutions on the table that everyone can agree to well that just requires adults and so I've tried to make my videos and cater my videos to that. I, the most recent video I did was about Donald Trump and the things he's done right. Because I feel like even yeah. I feel like there's a lot of unfairness in that respect, too. you got to see things through an objective prism. And in, in politics, that's uh, that's really difficult. So I found that it was kind of wearing me down. It was making me depressed. And so I found a little bit of, a, you know, a little bit of levity with fireside chats and then with side quests and now with a knockback. I think that we're going to... Um, you know, have a nice trifecta of things that touches on the things that I love and care about, but in a more healthy way. That's cool. I'm looking forward to that very much. So. Thank you. In the past, I've heard people ask for advice, whether it was from you and Greg together or you individually about how to get into the games industry, maybe how to get into YouTube. And you've said, just don't do it. It's not easy. It's not even feasible. I don't know. But just imagine if someone was adamant that this is what they wanted to do, and they wanted to give it every shot that they had until they had absolutely no other option but to do something else. So with, with that in mind, what would be your advice to people that want to do this kind of thing? Um, yeah, and just to be clear before I, I answer it, I want to say that I say <laughs> not to do it to a lot of people because I just think that there are better, easier, and more lucrative ways to make a living. And I often direct that towards teenagers um, who are figuring out what they want to do. Yeah, I mean, as a former journalist, I kind of have to hold back when I meet a journalism student and just be like... Good luck. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard, right? Like it's it's you know, and, and I'm not saying other you know being a pharmacist isn't hard. It's extremely hard. But w when people ask like, what should I do? I'm going to college and stuff, and I'm like, major in a STEM you know field. Go to a trade school. You know, like you will if you have a chemistry degree, if you have an engineering degree, uh, an electrical engineering degree, a mechanical engineering degree, if you have a physics degree, if you know how to repair HVAC, if you know how to repair cars, if you know like those are all you you have a job for the rest of your life if you're a nurse. All those kinds of things. So that's all I'm trying to say when people are like, I want to write about video games. I'm like, be very sure because when you're 16, 17, 18, 20, 22 years old, you have no idea what you're talking about. And I say that as someone, I look back at myself even when I'm 25 and I'm like, Jesus Christ, you're dumb. You know? And uh, <laughs> so I know that it's one of those things where people want to follow their passions. And I and it's easy for me to say because I followed my passion and it worked. But I just don't want people to look back and be like, man, that Colin Moriarty gave me advice and now I make $20,000 a year. And, uh, you know, I could have been an engineer and made six yeah. figures easily. Um, so I just say it from that prism. But if you want to do this, then I think that the big thing is you need to find a niche that makes sense and you need to be consistent. You have to deliver on time. The, the Internet's way too competitive. YouTube and podcasting way too competitive to fail at being on time um, and being thought provoking. And if you want to get into a space and say specific things that 10 other people are already saying with millions of followers, then I don't think you should bother. But if you really have this urge, then you just need to put your all into it and you need to have that consistency and you need to have that angle that isn't covered yet that, you know, time is valuable. 
that's what I always say to people too when people are like, I wish the podcast were longer. I wish CLS was longer. And I'm like, well, average watch time on CLS is nine minutes. You might want me to make another 40-minute moon base video, and that was a lot of fun. But you know, realistically, 15 minutes is the average watch time on that video. So you have to look at the data too and figure out what people are looking for. And, uh, and be honest with yourself that you're not entitled. I'm certainly not entitled to all of your time. I could easily put out 25 hours of content a week, I guess. I could just talk into a fucking microphone and put it out there and pretend that it's good. But you have to, people's time are valuable, so make sure you use it wisely. And uh, that's what I've learned. And I think that's how CLS has gotten better on the show is the shows used to be really long. They were jump cutty. Um, a lot of me on saying saying redundant stuff because I was not writing scripts. That's how the show kind of adapted. Right. Now it's scripted. It, the scripts are usually three pages. Uh, a page for me is about four and a half minutes, you know, or a little less, maybe four minutes, depending. And they're scripted. They're tight. I'm cutting things out of them constantly, making them shorter and shorter because I think that that treats the reader or the viewer or the listener with respect. Um, mm. And so that's the other thing that I think you have to keep in mind. Yeah, I totally relate to that because I've, I had a lot of people tell me that they like this podcast because it is generally 25 to 35 minutes and the podcast average seems to be like an hour or, or whatever it is. So they appreciate that. And I do go to a lot of efforts to trim out, uh, you know, silence and things like that to just save a minute or two minutes off the total runtime because people's time is valuable. Yeah. It's, it's, to me, it's, it's, uh, there is a value to, you know, it's like you're, you're talking about trimming a minute or two at a time. And I do that too in my in my videos when I'm doing CLS or SideQuest. I'm like, I don't really need to say this. This is kind of dumb. It's 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's 12 seconds here and there's five seconds there and all of this. But then that adds up. Then that becomes minutes and tens yeah. of minutes and hours. And and that's people's time. <laughs> you know, like I, not everyone, there are, there are podcasts and I've been on Joe Rogan twice. So there are podcasts that are that are long. Right. Like I did Joe Rogan twice for three hours each. That's six hours. Now, Joe Rogan <laughs> is fascinating. He's great. He's a master at what he does and he can get away with it. For me, I can't get away with that and I don't want to get away with it. And I wouldn't presume that I could get away with that. And I'm not Joe Rogan, you know. Uh, so I just try to that's good advice for anyone, I think, is to like and it's good advice in writing. Like, do you need to say yeah. this? Length isn't. You know, sounds a little sexual, I guess, but length isn't that important. It's about the content of, you know, think about how powerful um, like a five sentence poem can be compared Mm. to, uh, you know, like what it could say, what a sonnet or something shorter can say, as opposed to like a novel that has the same message. Well, there might be value in the novel. Maybe the novel is better, but this just got the point across in 10 seconds. And I even look at some of my favorite books of all time, like like Atlas Shrugged, which is one of my favorite books. And I'm like, this you could cut a third off this book, you know, and it would be fine. It would be totally fine. So yeah, <laughs> trim and cut and don't feel like you need to like hit this. People always say like, I wish it was longer. I wish it was longer. I'm like, yeah, be careful what you wish for. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it is funny. Like even just by cutting up the um that everyone says before they answer a question can save like 30 seconds. Right. Now this is, this is, <laughs> so when I started doing Collins last stand, this is a funny thing I never talked about. I hate breathing noises a lot. Yeah, me too. I cut those out. <laughs> but I realize that no one really cares. That like when, when I, or a few people care. Like I've never heard anyone complain about it on my shows. Maybe they do. Because I was, I was going through and when I would hear like a, I would like cut it out hmm. of Premiere. And this took like hours of my own time. So you have to also <laughs> look at your time and then I'm like, well, I just put out a video, didn't do that. Yeah. And then realized no one said anything. And then I did put out another video and didn't do that. 
and then no one say anything. And I'm like, well, this is actually wasting my time. So it's like it's like this it's like this passive feedback. You yeah, know, you, we were talking about feedback before. You can like uh, listen to it with a ear for that kind of thing, and listen to it in a way that no one else is going to listen to it when you're editing. So I think you're right there. Yeah, well, I, I, it's funny because I, I've been noticing it a lot. I watch Pardon the Interruption, which is a sports show on ESPN, and um, they often have people for this thing called a uh, Five Good Minutes, which is a guy, you know, a, a, an expert in a sport. You know, Matt Hasselbeck was the guy, quarterback, who was on it yesterday. And I realized when he was talking, he was breathing like, blah, 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 blah. And like, no one found that annoying. It doesn't seem like I'm like, I'm like, I'm focusing on all these tangential things that don't really matter. So as a creator, I guess we're kind of working, you know, you and I are kind of getting into a good place where we're giving advice where it's like, also worry about your own time. Mm. You know, don't let, what what is the saying? Don't let perfect be the enemy of great or something there's something something like that where it's like you know yeah. you kind of have to let something go after a while um and not get too nuts about it you're not a professional audio engineer yeah you know creating a television show or something like that it's it's uh you have to be realistic about your time as well that's right you'll end up with chinese democracy instead of you know actually getting something out there the guns and roses album that took what 12 years to put out yeah exactly exactly okay so the last question i've got for you before i ask a few you know, I have to take the opportunity to ask you some games-related questions because while well, I've got you here, sure. If you could do anything and know that you wouldn't fail, what would you do? Um, probably write fiction. But there's a lot. Like I have this almost Renaissance man mentality where I, I'm really interested in a lot of things. Like I would be an archaeologist. I would be an astronomer. I would. <laughs> there's like a million. Like there's. A, I'm fascinated by certain. You know, historian. Like a real historian. There are a million things that I'm so fascinated and interested in that I would love an opportunity to get a crack, you know, a crack at doing. So yeah, being a, fi- a writer of fiction, a, a writer of movies, a writer of television shows, a post-apocalyptic dystopian stuff. I mean, I'd love to do that kind of stuff. But in reality, I wish I could just dip in and out of things every few years. You know, be an archaeologist, be an astronomer, mm-hmm. be a you know, you know, run a political campaign, or be a teacher. These are fascinating things. I I can't relate to those that don't have these wide-ranging interests. You know, do you ever do you ever meet someone that doesn't like music? That like doesn't have you ever <laughs> yeah. like that doesn't care about music at all? It's rare, but yeah. Like I've met a few people like that, and I'm like, really? That's like just an inherent part of my life. So I I just I try to take I try to look at life and what's before us, especially in this 21st century where everything's at our fingertips, as a moment to an opportunity to learn and to expand and all that kind of stuff. And so yeah, like I I I was thinking recently because you know CLS has been good to me and Patreon's been good to me. I'm like, should I? go back to school because um, I can just pay the tuition in cash or whatever. I don't have to have these debts anymore. And um, Archaeology? And I was like, yeah, should I go to school for archaeology? And I, But I'm like, oh. why? You know, like, you don't yeah. have to... Is there anything left to discover? Oh, there's... I feel like Indiana Jones covered all of There that. is, believe it or not, plenty, especially in the United States. <laughs> but because yeah. they're really getting into the nitty-gritty of these Indian sites and stuff like, you know, in the middle of the country now. Right, But, sure. you know, regardless, there's always something to find. But the, the point I was, I, was th- I was trying to make, I think, and where I was getting at with my own mind is, like, leave that to the experts. You can just be really interested in it. And you can be really interested in chemistry. And you can be really interested mm. in, uh, in, in history and politics and all those kinds of things. You have the freedom to do whatever you want. And so I kind of try to look at it like that, where I'm like... Uh, like uh, that old Renaissance man mentality where I really, you know, like the, you know, not Benjamin Franklin because he was like actively awesome at all of these things. <laughs> but that kind of mentality where he's like, today I'm going to be an inventor and tomorrow I'm going to write and the next day I'm going to be a, a diplomat and then I'm going to, you know, advise Thomas Jefferson on the Declaration of Independence. Then I'm going to go to France for 10 years and then I'm going to go play chess and with chess masters and do all. I respect the shit out of that. That's so cool. That's living, you know? And uh, hmm. so I, I would love to do something like that. 
I guess you'll have to settle for playing Uncharted and Mass Effect and experiencing it through those lenses. Yeah, man. Oh my God. I would I would go to space in two seconds if they let me. You gotta be kidding me. Uh, it's so exciting. Yeah. It's so exciting. Yeah. You know? But alas. I'm glad that you mentioned that book because oh, not the book, but writing. Because I wanted to ask you about the fictional story that you started working on. I think when you were on holiday in uh, Mexico or something like last year. Is that still something that you like to do? Is that something that you've put to the side? Yeah, I, lo- I mean it's to the side, but I love the idea. I won't go into it, yet, you know. But it's, I think it's a great idea, and um, it's about, uh, you know, loosely it's it takes place in the United States, and and it's it's. Uh, when I saw Handmaid's Tale, I don't know if you've seen that show, uh, but when, when, when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is kind of kind of what I was getting at, um, but in a way. So there's like kind of shades of, not really, but there are kind of shades of, of this uh, of this far right kind of situation that I wanted to write about in the United States. And, and, and uh, I think the idea is solid and good. It's just, it takes time, you know, and I don't have any. So it's, uh, that's like the kind of thing where like one day I'll probably just have to quit doing everything and just write it and see what yeah. happens but i'm not there yet sure all right so that's the uh i guess the colin moriarty story over for now thanks so much for for sharing everything but i have to use your playstation background and knowledge to ask your views on kaz Harai's announced resignation or future resignation from playstation yeah i don't know i mean i don't what does it mean i don't know what it means you know ceos come and go and uh he was ceo for six yeah. years so it's not unusual. Maybe he wants to retire. He's been involved in this for a long time since the, since day zero of PlayStation, right? So people want to retire and want to move on. He's probably in his 60s. Mm. And um, I, sure. I haven't read too deeply, and I'm not sure that the, any information out of Japan has really come about what the nature of this is. They have the CFO lined up to take over for him, and um, and it seems like it's very orderly. And it doesn't seem like it has anything to do with performance because they're not pushing him out. He's staying for a little while. So, so I really think that it might just be a natural kind of progression of people turning over and and finding new jobs and doing new things but i don't know i don't know the details mm. of it yet and how much say or influence does the ceo have in the overall like direction of the you know company like are they making decisions are they just kind of making sure everything's working and running smoothly well that the the, the working and running smoothly thing would be more of a coo so the the c the, the ceo is uh, immensely important i don't think ceo should be making 40 million dollars a year or anything like that but when people are like, this CEO made five or six or seven million dollars a year, and I'm like, yeah, the CEO is making the calls for a multi-billion dollar corporation and has to live and breathe that life sometimes for five or ten years at a time, so they should be well compensated. But the CEO is immensely important, immensely important. Really, the interface between, for public companies, the interface between the board and the shareholders and kind of the, the, the architecture and the structure of the, of the business itself, and really the buck stops with that person. It's the, you know... It is the chief executive. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's going to have ramifications. And when there is bad leadership at the top, that hurts. Look at what happened with Don Matrick at Xbox. You know, he totally shat the bed. And when Phil Spencer came in, mm-hmm. not that he's at the CEO position, but when he came in in a leadership position, that changed the whole the whole thing for Xbox, the whole, you know, the whole thing for Microsoft. So yeah. um, so it's sad to see him go, but I think it's just the, the natural ebb and flow. You know, six years, seven years as a CEO is a long time. A lot of CEOs move on by that point. It's Because it's it is a grueling gig, man. Like, it's... I think I'm not saying again that 10, 15, 20 million dollars is necessarily necessary for these people to do these jobs, but I don't begrudge them making millions of dollars because it's uh, these are soul-crushing jobs um, that require a great deal of competence. By the way, and would you tie a lot of PlayStation's success in the current generation to what Kaz has done? 
Sure. Yeah, yeah. I would. Although it seems to be more of a of a family affair there than anything else. You know, you have a lot of movers and shakers with Andrew House and a few others that are great respected decision makers that are shepherding the product. I mean, even Shuhei Yoshida, obviously, and Mark Cerny, they all have this this relative importance, whether it's from an organizational standpoint or a techno- technological standpoint, whatever it is. The way it mm. fuses together and the way these parts work is actually where the CEO comes in. And so, yeah, a good CEO can make a company and a, and a bad CEO can break a company. There's no doubt about that. Look at, uh, again, Don Matrick when he went to Zynga um, as CEO. I mean, Zynga fell apart. Mm. So it's uh, so clearly there's something about the man, right? And yeah. uh, and the way he operates. Sure. All right. And Red Dead Redemption Two. We've got an, uh, an release date. I was going to say an announced date, but that would have been this week already. Uh, October twenty sixth, whatever it was. Do you see a lot of the Sony exclusives that have been held back from release dates getting announced soon because we know that they can avoid that mammoth of, of Red Dead Redemption Two. Yeah, I think Red Dead's going to cannibalize everything around it. But that's... I don't know what they're waiting for with the PlayStation games. Um, we got the God of War date, which is great. And uh, I think Days Gone and Detroit are going to be next. Spider-Man's going to be somewhere in there, too. And one of those games is going to have to go in the fall. Mm. So th- there, there's no way that they're going to be able... Everyone's going to be able to avoid Red Dead. But the beauty of Red Dead and the beauty of Rockstar is that they can just do whatever they want uh, because they've earned it. You know, mm. 80 million units of Grand Theft Auto V at $60 a pop would generate over $4 billion in revenue. Now, now, obviously, not every every game sold is sixty dollars. But then there's DLC and all this back end support and stuff like that. They print money, and so if they need six extra months, it's not going to hurt them. Uh, Red Dead Redemption is good for twenty five million sold in its first year easily, and that's and they're going to make their money back in its first day. Hmm. So they can they can um, take all the time they need. And I would, if I were Activision um, uh, specifically with Destiny DLC and with Call of Duty, and if I was EA with Battlefield, I'd be very very frightened of what that what's going to happen to their games because everyone's going to buy Red Dead. Yeah, and you just put up that video as of recording this on the Wild West. Are you particularly hyped for the Red Dead Redemption sequel? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's I'm looking forward to it. I don't know that I'm hyped. There are other games that I'm looking forward to way more than that. Most imminently, I think. Detroit. Uh, Detroit looks great. I'm really excited about Far Cry 5. Like, I think that game looks awesome. I think that game looks awesome. What a great setting. Nino Kuni. Uh, Nino Kuni, yes. Nino Kuni 2, which was delayed, thankfully, mercifully. I've been playing a lot of older <laughs> games lately, so it'll be nice to, because uh, there's just nothing speaking to me right now. So it'll be nice for these games to start rolling out. But yeah, in terms of like, for some reason, I think my most anticipated game is Far Cry. Like I, I, I just, uh, I think the setting in Montana is cool with this far right kind of militia. Um, and obviously the gunplay and kind of the elements that make Far Cry are so great. Um, so I'm really, really looking forward to yeah. that a lot. Yeah. I had a chance to play that and Nino Cooney and Detroit at PAX last year and all three, are, yeah, I'm on the same boat there. Looking forward to a big year in 2018. Yeah, me too. It's going to be great. I, I, uh, I'm i using this time wisely, though, to go back and just play things that I missed or that I wanted to go back and enjoy. And, and uh, that's that's kind of Smart. the beauty of, of not working at iGen or kind of funny is that I don't have to really be super current anymore. Um, I can kind of just, mm. you know, I follow industry trends and all that, which is really what SideQuest is dedicated to. But in terms of play, like I can just kind of follow my heart, and that's what I've been doing. So I, I platinumed Bioshock Two, I platinumed Bioshock Infinite, and uh, you know, games that I never really experienced all the way through. And and even though they're older, I, I enjoyed the you know enjoyed them immensely without this crushing pressure of playing what's next. So that was nice. Sounds good. Well, thanks again uh, for coming on the show, Colin. It's ironically we were talking about condensing episodes, but this is my longest one that I've ever done. <laughs> well, I hope that uh, I hope your audience likes it. Thank you for having me. And thank you for inviting me. That's all right. You sign off with saying, keep on learning. I say, keep putting in work. But I think those two things are 
fairly close because, you know, learning does take a lot of work. So uh, it's clear from not only your career, but, you know, the message you're preaching that you're all about that work that has to go into making something of value. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I uh, you know, I think hard work is, you, hard work's never going to hurt, I don't think. And I think that that's what, you know, I don't like this idea, this notion that this, it's very jaded notion propagated mostly by people that failed, right? And then don't want to get back up off the mat again. That hard work and determination and bootstraps and all that kind of stuff, they, they matter. And if, you, and, if, and if you really want to make something of yourself, I believe that you can. You know, I'm a firm believer in that. So, so uh, I like the message a lot. Awesome. Go Islanders. Yes, go Isles. Thank you for listening. That was Colin Moriarty, and you can follow him on Twitter at No Taxation. Check out all of his great content on YouTube at Colin's Last Stand, as well as podcast services. I'm on Twitter at Jonah himself, and if you've enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I've also got some merch you can buy to support the show if you head to 8bit, spelled A-T-E-B-I-T, dot net slash P-I-W, and check out the rest of the awesome content from the 8-Bit Podcast Collective. Until next week, keep putting in work.